Well, good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jeff Chang. I serve as one of the elders here at this church. Uh, I'd love a chance to meet you after the service. Again, if I haven't met you before, uh, so glad that you could join us here this morning. You know, we live in a world full of options, and all that makes life very complicated. Uh, when I go into a gourmet ice cream shop, I want vanilla ice cream, but instead what they offer is sea salt with caramel ribbons, you know, pistachio with saffron and rose water, lemon marie gold, amaro sherbet, and just on and on. Like all these options, I have no idea what these things are. There's a lot of pressure. You know, you want to pick something good, uh, <clears throat> so you're tasting stuff, and, and the line is building up behind you, and you feel bad. You're, I'm like reading reviews on Yelp, trying to find a good option. You know, sociologists have observed that with all the, the, the freedom and wealth and choices that we have today, there's actually a lot more stress, a lot less happiness. We, we feel like we have to make the absolute optimal choice in all of our decisions. Otherwise, we doom ourselves to a sub-optimal future. So every decision counts. Every choice matters. It all feels overwhelming. The alternative, of course, is just to become jaded about life, right? About our choices. What, what does it matter what ice cream I buy? It's all sugar and milk. It's all the same thing. I mean, have you ever noticed Italian food is all the same ingredients, just in, in different shapes and combinations, right? Uh, really, all these choices are just an illusion. There's really not that much choice to make. In the end, who, who really cares? I wonder where you would find yourself, either overwhelmed by all the choices out there or just jaded. Who really cares? It doesn't make a difference. In this spring, we've been working through the book of Proverbs, written by Solomon, Israel's greatest and wisest king. And today we, we wrap up our little study uh, through this opening section. We're going to be in chapters 8 and 9. Feel free to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, I would encourage you to do so. And as we're going to see, life is really not that complicated. Life is not that complicated. It, all of life fundamentally comes down to two choices. And yet, in those two choices, what we choose really matters. It matters for eternity. So, so again, open your Bibles. Look at Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, this really marks the end of this opening section. From here on out, you're going to encounter chapters that will contain all kinds of Proverbs. And yet here, to close this section, to, to prepare you for reading those Proverbs, uh, we are going to see that all of life really comes down to two choices. And that's my first point of my sermon. Life comes down to two choices. Let me read here in Proverbs chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. 
Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Well, after all the instruction and teaching and the lectures to his sons in the previous chapters, Solomon summarizes it all with this. Will you choose wisdom or will you choose folly? There are two ways to live, wisdom or folly. And we see this in how this chapter is framed by these two depictions of lady wisdom and lady folly. And we see from the start how lady wisdom is a hard worker. She has built her own house with pillars to support it. Uh, the, the picture of pillars indicates that this is not a small house. No, this is, this is a palace. This is like a temple. And Lady Wisdom has put on a lavish feast for her guests. In verse 2, she has expertly prepared her meat. Uh, clearly, barbecue is the food of wisdom, right? It's on offer here in her house. Uh, she has skillfully mixed her wine. Not only that, but Lady Wisdom is a great lady. She has servants working for her. She, she sends out her maids to invite all to her great banquet. From the highest points of the city, they call out, not, not to the rich or the powerful or the noble, but to the simple, to those who are lacking, to those who are poor, inviting them to partake in this free, this lavish banquet. And what's on offer, it's not just food. No, it's life with wisdom. Leave your simple ways and live, she says. But down in verse 13, we see the other voice, Lady Folly. She is undisciplined. She, she knows little. She talks a fine game, but there's no substance. Whatever she has, she hasn't worked for it. No, unlike Lady Wisdom, she sits outside her house calling out to people to turn aside into her home. Uh, you'll remember back in chapter 7, all those images of the forbidden woman. Seducing and tempting. Lady Folly's call is heard by all also from the highest places of town. You know, it's so interesting. Her words there in verse 16 are identical with wisdom's words in verse 4. But whereas wisdom is calling the simple because of her grace, because of her kindness, she wants to help them. Lady Folly is inviting the simple so that she can take advantage of them, so that she can trick them. 
Because what she has to offer are illicit pleasures, stolen water, secret bread. These are the pleasures of our sin, our folly, our addictions. And so you, you imagine this young man walking into Lady Folly's house. The lights are dim. The strobe lights are flashing. The music is loud. The food is tasty. Everybody looks like they're having a good time there in the darkness. You know, you, you're in there. You're thrilled. But then in verse 18, the lights come on. You look down on your plate, and it's filled with rotten food, maggots, cobwebs. You look around at your guests, at the other guests, and they're all disfigured, scarred, dying. And what you thought was a beautiful home is actually a grave. This is what life comes down to. Will you choose wisdom or will you choose folly? You know, sitting here on a Sunday morning with, a, with beautiful light shining in the windows, it's easy to think, well, of course I want wisdom, right? I'm going to choose the right thing. But we know that when Monday morning comes, we know that when temptation comes, we so often choose folly. Why is that? It's because what captures our hearts is not so often categories of right and wrong, but categories of pleasure, enjoyment. We, we are drawn to folly even when we know it's wrong because of all the pleasure that she offers, the, the stolen water, that secret bread. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis describes this dynamic through the words of a senior demon training a junior demon. And Lewis writes this, the demon speaking, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground, on God's ground. I know that we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That is the formula to get the man's soul and give him nothing in return. That is what really gladdens Satan's heart. Well, there you have it. That's Satan's strategy. Ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's, that's the grave that folly lives in. At the core of our captivity to folly, then, is that something is broken in our relationship with God. That, that's what we see in those middle verses, 7 to 12, here in Proverbs chapter 9. I mean, here you see the dynamic, right? You have wise reproof, the same wise reproof being given to one person and to another person. The one person is a scoffer, and when he hears that reproof, he gets angry. He gets violent, 
right? He hates it. The other person is a wise man. And he hears that reproof. He loves it. And he is so thankful for those words. Same advice, same words, two different outcomes. Why is that? It's because of the folly in our hearts, right? It's because of verse 10. What we see there in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One insight. The problem then is not that we can't find wisdom or that we don't have access to wisdom. No, the problem is with our hearts. We don't fear God. In our lack of the fear of the Lord, we reveal our hatred of wisdom and our love of folly. And therefore, we hate being rebuked because we're proud. We'd rather be praised and flattered. And that's what Lady Folly offers. We only fear what other people think of us. We don't fear what God thinks of us. You know, it turns out that the voice of Lady Folly is actually the voice of our own pride. This voice comes from the world. It comes from the devil, yes, but it also comes from our own prideful hearts when we live in the fear of everything else but God. And so no wonder we fall for the lies of folly again and again. So what's the solution, right? If the problem lies within us, we must be rescued from the outside. And that is why Solomon has personified wisdom. Wisdom does not come through learning impersonal, disembodied proverbs and rules for life. It's not tips for better living. No, wisdom comes as we learn the fear of the Lord, uh, of the one who made us, the one who rules us, knowledge of the Holy One. Wisdom must come and interrupt our folly and awaken us to a banquet that is greater than anything that folly offers. You know, that, that, that's what the fear of the Lord is all about. Don't think of fear, that word fear, like being afraid or being terrified. That, that's not what it means. No, f- the fear of the Lord is something that attracts us, that draws us in. Uh, Michael Reeves in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, describes the fear of the Lord like this. The living God is infinitely perfect and quintessentially, overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. His righteousness, his graciousness, his majesty, his mercy, his all. And so we do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. True fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all his grace and glory. In other words, the, the fear of the Lord is the right emotional, affectionate response to the true God. You know, wh- why this word fear? Why not the word reverence or awe? Well, well, Reeves argues that you know reverence and awe can have this sort of distant and intellectual connotation. You can... You can revere something or even be in awe of something, but not truly be in love with something and drawn to it. And yet the fear of the Lord 
we see in Scripture, it, it captures our hearts. It is a trembling love that, that draws us in and that despite all of its majesty and glory, it attracts us, it humbles us, and it captivates us. I remember one time snorkeling off of the, off of the coast of South India in, in the Maldives, and uh, I, I'm not a strong swimmer. I'm not a great swimmer. There I was in the ocean, snorkeling, feeling pretty good about myself. And out of nowhere, this huge wave comes and just sort of catch, comes over me, pulls me under. Like, I have never felt power quite like that before in my life. Uh, beforehand, I was snorkeling. I was kind of peacefully enjoying my time. Yeah, this is pretty cool. After that wave, I just thought, wow, like, I, I do not want to mess with this ocean. I have to be careful. And yet, after I survived that wave, that was like the most thrilling experience I've ever had, right? I mean, that, I think that's something like the fear of the Lord. I mean, it could kill you. God is so holy, so majestic. We could not stand in his presence. And yet, in all of his majesty, we are drawn to him. We realize that kind of glory, power, majesty is what we were made for. Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it is as we begin with the fear of the Lord, as we live and walk in that fear of the Lord, that God reveals more and more of himself to us, that we begin to taste of his banquet. If you want to grow in wisdom, build on this foundation of a humble, loving fear of God. Because it is only the fear of the Lord that will be powerful enough to make the illicit pleasures of folly to be seen as rotten as they are. You know, the power of a relationship to teach us wisdom. I think that's what we're after here. When I was single, for a few years, I lived in this home uh, with 10 other guys. We were all 10 single guys living in a home. Can you imagine how dirty that can get? Um, and so there, there was this, um, the way we made it work was that we kept the place clean by having these house rules. And this was the this, this sort of multi-page document that was always growing as new rules were constantly being added because there were constant infractions happening all the time. So, for example, rule, uh, one of the rules was, you know, silverware and drinking glasses should be washed in the dishwasher. Simply licking your used utensils and drying them with your shirt is not sufficient cleaning method, right? That, that's, that's a good rule for a house. If you decide to cut your hair or cut someone else's hair, use the bathrooms instead of the kitchen or dining room or living area. Right? Or another rule. Once something is thrown into the garbage can, it is considered garbage and should not be eaten. Right? Really important kind of ground rules for living with 10 guys. Thankfully, I got married. Uh, I moved out. And, you know, when I embraced that new relationship with my wife, right, there, we don't have house rules like this anymore, but, but I'm not as messy as I used to be, right? Change has come through this new relationship, but by deepening my, my, my love for my wife, my understanding of what pleases her, what brings her joy, and as I learned that, I, I want to please her, and I've changed, therefore, how I live. Right. And she's probably think there's still a long way to go. <laughs> but, but I have changed, I promise. Um, you know, that, that relationship has been so much more powerful in terms of bringing real change than any document of rules. 
as I've gotten to know her and love her and walk with her. You know, when we embrace a relationship with God, we learn wisdom. The, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's no way to learn wisdom apart from seeing God and learning to fear him. But how do we do that? How do we gain insight into the Holy One? Knowledge of the Holy One, as it says there in verse 10. Well, that's why chapter 8 exists. And, you know, something really interesting is happening there in chapter 9, verse 10. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That Holy One there is actually in the plural. In the, in the original Hebrew, knowledge of the Holy Ones is insight. Well, what is the plural? Yeah, God is the Holy One, but who else? Who is this talking about? The only major person being shown in these passages is none other than wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, and point number 2. Choose Jesus, the wisdom of God. Choose Jesus, the wisdom of God. Chapter 8 of Proverbs. It is such a unique chapter in all the Old Testament. Because not only do we see wisdom personified, which Solomon has done in previous chapters, but here he places wisdom right alongside God. Which is a strange thing for a a good monotheistic Jew to do. I mean, here he is exalting wisdom in the highest terms possible. Look at chapter 8, starting in verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Jewish rabbis have long debated who this wisdom is. And and the general consensus among those scholars is that Solomon here is speaking of the Torah, the law of Moses. The only problem is that nowhere else in the Old Testament is the Torah ever personified like this. Not even close. Nowhere is the Torah ever placed alongside God or portrayed as personally loving humanity. Solomon here is speaking of of someone or something or someone much more profound, much more connected to God. 
We see here that that the Lord possessed wisdom from the very beginning, from from eternity past, even before the world was ever made. There was wisdom with God. Wisdom was daily God's delight, it says. And together, when God creates the world, wisdom was his master workman, the, the, the agent of creation. God establishes this world by wisdom. And even as God breathes life into man and makes man in his image, so Wisdom rejoices and delights in the children of man. Wisdom loves humanity, delights in us. As one theologian says, not a speck of matter, not a trace of order came into existence, but by wisdom. And so when we think about what we're hearing in chapter 9, right, the choice between wisdom and folly, this is what's at stake. Wisdom is our maker. To, to reject wisdom for folly is not just to reject kind of one lifestyle for another or one career path for another. No, to reject wisdom is to reject the very fabric of our existence. It is to reject the very one who made us and who loves us most. To live according to wisdom is to find that deepest, that truest purpose for which we were created. And while the rabbis debated the identity of wisdom... When the apostles met Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord, the Son of God, they recognized him. They recognized him as the one foretold here in Proverbs 8. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, all things created by him and for him. Friends, wisdom has a name. His name is Jesus. Speaking to the religious leaders of his day, Jesus declares, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon. Jesus wasn't referring just to the fact that he was his descendant and a king. No, Jesus was saying, I am wisdom itself. I am the one who made Solomon what he is. The one who gave Solomon everything he had. The one greater than Solomon has come. And he is the eternal wisdom of God. So, so why should you embrace Jesus? Why should you embrace wisdom rather than your sin? Because he is the one through whom you were made and for whom you were made. You were not created to worship yourself. You are not the main character of this story of human history. Jesus, the wisdom of God, is the main character of our story. He is the one who was begotten of the Father, who lived before time began. He is the one for whom all of this 
was made. And you were created to know him, to worship this majestic, all-powerful, joyful, merciful maker, to live for him. Every longing that you have for glory and joy and life is not fulfilled in any impersonal reward, but in Jesus. So the next time you're tempted by folly, don't think of sin just as breaking some random rule. No, think of sin as trying to undo the fabric of the universe, going against the very way this universe was meant to work. In our sin, we use the very gifts that God has given us to try to go against what we were made for. Folly tries to reverse the gravity of praise and worship that Jesus, our maker, deserves, even while we enjoy the stability of that gravity. Think of folly as a kidnapper, taking you away from Jesus, the one who loves you the most, your creator, the one for whom you exist, stealing you away from your only joy in life. The next time temptation comes, say to it, why would I ever turn my back on Jesus, my maker, the one who loves me, the one who gave me everything I have? Why would I turn my back on him? Well, Proverbs 8 depicts Jesus not only as our maker, but also as our teacher. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O man, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak of noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So wisdom here, though she is from eternity past, she is also in the present. She is not silent. She is not alien. She is not a secretive. No, you, you encounter wisdom down on the streets, street level, in the marketplace, in the gates of the city, amid the noise and the dust of everyday life, wisdom calls out to the children of man, no matter how simple, how foolish, no matter who you are here today, whether a successful businessman, whether a stressed-out mom, a student, wisdom is willing to to come down to your level, to condescend and meet you right where you are. Enter your world. Speak truth into your life. How serious can we take wisdom's invitation? Does, does wisdom really call out, invite fools like us? Well, yes. I mean, think of the distance that wisdom came all the way from eternity past, from, the, from, from God's own side 
to be able to speak to us here. Friends, we thought Solomon was just being poetic, but in Jesus, we see this passage fulfilled in a way that we could have never imagined. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Heavenly wisdom has literally come down to us. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, became man. His disciples touched him and hugged him and ate with him and lived with him. He, he breathed our air. He walked in our shoes. He dealt with the suffering and pain that we ourselves have come to know. Now, this is not <clears throat> new age spirituality or, or elitist philosophy or vague notions of self-help. This is the wisdom of God in the flesh, lived out personally, concretely, in the very same world that we live in here today. And wisdom has something to say to us, has something to teach us. As we see here, in our postmodern world full of fake news and corruption and paranoia, here is clear, undiluted truth. Every word from the mouth of Jesus, every word in the Bible about Jesus is noble, is right, it's true. Here is truth on which you can build your life, on which you can stake your future. Here is truth that trumps all other truths. The young boy hears the, the blacksmith hammering away in his shop. He comes in and he sees all these hammers, piles of them worn out. He asks them, how many anvils have you had to wear out so many hammers? The blacksmith says, just one, just one anvil. The, the anvil wears out the hammers, you know. And so it is with God's word. As skeptics take their hammers and bang upon God's word. Hammer upon hammer is worn out. And the anvil stands there unharmed, the anvil of God's word. You know, there will be times when Jesus' teaching will not line up with our agendas. We, we bring our hammers to the, to the anvil of Jesus' teachings and truth. We want Jesus to solve our problems, to fix our relationships, to remove our stress from our lives. But Jesus is a master teacher. He doesn't let us set the agenda. No, he has an agenda for us. He doesn't conform his message to us. No, we conform to his message. He wants to teach us the fear of the Lord. So we come to Jesus. We're all worried about our finances. We're worried about our bodies and our health. Jesus comes and says to us, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Yeah, you need food to live. But Jesus asked, why do you live? What is your life for? Have you ever thought of that? You know, we need clothes for our bodies. Yes, Jesus knows that. But then he asks, why have you been given a body? Why do you have arms and legs and, and a mind and a heart? What are these things for? You know, you're, you're fearful about terrorists, about war, about cancer, 
Jesus comes along and says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Yeah, those who kill the body, that, that's an awful thing. But there's something far more awful, isn't there, that Jesus is showing us. Replace all your small fears with a greater fear of the God who rules over you soul and body. And let that fear of the Lord set you free. Jesus, by the anvil of his teaching, is wearing down the hammers of our earthly-minded concerns. All these little, little tiny fears and replacing them with something far better, the fear and the love of the Lord. The next time you're being tempted by folly, ask yourself this, what lies am I believing in that make folly so attractive? Because behind every temptation and sin that you face are lies about God, things that are false. If you're not sure, sit down with a friend. And, and, and together, think it through. What lies am I believing in? And, and once you've identified that lie, then go to the only one who can tell you the truth. Open up God's word. Sit at the feet of Jesus. And let Jesus, the, the master, the teacher, tell you the truth about yourself, about God, to combat the lies of folly. Every word Jesus says is better than gold. We also see Jesus as our reward. Jesus, our reward. Look at verse 14. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness my fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Solomon was the richest king on earth during his reign, and yet he knew that all that he had did not come from himself, but it came from God through the wisdom that God had given him. The best kings and rulers of the earth sit at the feet of wisdom. Wisdom is the most precious thing anyone could ever possess because it's only by wisdom that anyone can reign and live rightly in this world in justice and righteousness. And yet for all their wealth, there's one thing that kings and rulers can't buy, and that's wisdom. No, wisdom is found by those who love her, who seek after her diligently. And so if you come to possess wisdom, even if you are a nobody, even if you're living in poverty, you are truly rich. And don't limit these rewards to just money. Notice the fruit of wisdom is better than gold and silver. You know, that's where prosperity theology falls short. Because if your wisdom is good, only good enough to get you money and that's it, well, that's not God's wisdom. No, wisdom provides an inheritance, enduring wealth, righteousness beyond this life into eternity. 
And to all his disciples, Jesus talked just like wisdom talks here. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Mark 10.29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. You know, perhaps you regret not having invested your money more wisely in your younger years. Perhaps you regret not having worked harder in school. Perhaps you regret certain life decisions you've made. I tell you, on the last day, whatever regret you've experienced on earth will pale in comparison with the regret of not having followed Jesus. When he is revealed as the king of the universe, as the reward of all those who come to him. And on the flip side, whatever cost you've incurred in following Jesus, house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands, those will seem microscopic, insignificant, compared with the enduring hundredfold riches that Jesus will bring with him to all those who loved him. If, Jesus, if what Jesus says here is true, then what truly matters is not your portfolio or your career or anything else. But wherever you are in life here today, are you following Jesus? Have you loved him? Are you embracing him? The only way you will ever be able to say no to the stolen pleasures of folly is if you come to see the far better riches that wisdom offers. See, don't think of folly as offering you something that you don't have or something that you won't get. No, don't think of obedience as missing out on something exciting in life. No, 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 no. Think of folly as trying to steal and kill and destroy the abundant life that Jesus has come to give you. Whatever folly offers, it is a loss. It is ultimately a loss of the greatest thing ever. So what that means is that we need to dwell more on heaven. We need to think more about our eternal reward to come. Rather than dwelling on the state of your bank account or your retirement portfolio, no, dwell on the riches that will one day be yours if you are in Christ. We need to, we need to imagine the crown that we will one day wear, that will one day make King Charles's crown look like a paper hat. No, we're going to wear a crown far more glorious. And we need to rejoice in the thought that one day we will take those crowns, glorious as they are, and lay them down at Jesus' feet. Because we're going to see our maker. We're going to see our savior face to face. And that's going to be joy beyond imagining. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. We need more songs. We need to sing more songs like that about heaven, don't we? 
every day of our lives. When we do that, we're simply reflecting on Proverbs 8, on all the riches that God promises through wisdom. Whatever temptation, whatever pain, whatever difficulty you're going through, let the starting point not be all the pain that you're suffering now. Let the starting point be the glory that is to come. The joy. That day when you're standing in glory, all tears wiped away in the kingdom of our Father. And then in light of that day, seek to live faithfully today. That's the way of wisdom. Finally, number four, Jesus, our life. Look at verse 32. Jesus, our life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Or as Jesus put it, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have all sinned against God. We have all listened to our folly. And for our sin, we have dug our own graves, thrown thrown our own parties in these graves, thinking that we are so smart on our own. And yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into this dying world to our rescue. Through his teaching, through his miracles, through his love, he has revealed himself to be none other than the wisdom of God. And yet, what did we do to him? What did mankind do to him? Did they listen to him? No, they killed him. As the Apostle Paul writes, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And yet, even in his crucifixion, Jesus was displaying the wisdom of God. Because there on the cross... Jesus, the wisdom of God, bore upon himself the death and the judgment that our folly deserved, dying in our place for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving his victory over sin and death. And now this message of the crucified and risen Savior is the good news of salvation for everyone. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Greeks, but to those whom God has called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Friends, you may have lived in foolishness all your life, but now God has brought you here today to interrupt you in that folly, to to cut you off from it, to awaken you to your condition The wisdom of God, Jesus Christ, has come to set you free from your sin. He has paid the debt of our sin. He has risen to give you new life. And today he calls you to turn away from your sin and to give yourself to him to learn the fear of the Lord. And if you will do so, he promises to forgive you of all of your foolishness to fill you with his spirit and to adopt you into his family. 
Friend, what Jesus offers is not some kind of distant gift that he kind of gives to you. Here is life. No, he offers you himself. In him is life. Whoever finds me finds life, Jesus says. Whether this is your first time in church, whether you've been coming all your life, this is the choice that faces you today and every day for the rest of your life. Will you choose the wisdom of God, Jesus, or will you continue in the folly of your own heart? Choose Christ and live. Turn away and die. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death.